Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So let's look at Acts chapter 6. We're in part 12 of our series in the book of Acts, God's kingdom mission for the church. And we saw last week in chapter 5, verses 17 to 42, we looked at the arrest, the miraculous release, and the rejoicing and suffering of the apostles. And we're seeing that this is the inspired model for the church. And so we're spending time looking at it chapter by chapter because there's no other example of the church better than this. This is the model. And so we want to imitate Christ and we want to imitate the early church and how they did church and discipleship. And so what we're going to see today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. It's the whole chapter, verse 6, I mean chapter 6. And we're going to see the church thriving under pressure. We're going to see them organizing and growing and suffering, and we're going to be looking at this. But before we do, I just want to note again here, you're going to see it yet again, that Luke gives a very transparent picture of the church. He's always giving an honest picture of the church. We saw in chapter 2 that the church burst forth with Pentecost fire, right? And it was quickly growing by the thousands. And then we saw that in chapter 4 there was its first satanic attack against the church and it was external it was the arrest of the apostles Peter and John in chapter 4 and then we saw in chapter 5 if you remember an internal attack with Ananias and Sapphira and the enemy realizing that if he clamps down and arrests the church that it only spreads in power like wildfire and so he said I'm going to get inside the church and get them to be hypocrites and get them to pretend to be spiritual and to seek the affirmation of gift giving and these things and it didn't work. We're gonna see yet again another challenge that the church is facing in chapter six. And this one is potential disunity. And so as we walk through this passage, we're gonna see the church from the beginning learning how to be a church for all nations. This is actually a model for us to be a community that embraces and unifies people from all ethnic groups. And so I've said it. I'm committed to that. I believe right here in Oklahoma, in the buckle of the Bible belt, where there's still some segregation, that the Lord's going to break that down, and we are actually going to live into being a multi-ethnic church. Amen? And a passage like this speaks directly to that. And we're going to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. No programs, no coercion, no uh, diversity rally or any. It's going to be the diversifying work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So let's read uh, Acts 6, 1 to 15. And we just ask, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. And we ask you through the Spirit to open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your word. 
And we ask that you would transform our minds and renew our hearts and fill us with fire through the truth of your scriptures. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Acts chapter 6, and you can look around if you want to grab a pew Bible, you can grab one, or I've been encouraging everyone to bring a study Bible, right? Acts chapter 6. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of God, friends. So, as I mentioned, we're looking at the church thriving under pressure, and the first six verses talk about the church organizing. Let's look at it. Opens here, calling, in verse 1, the Christians, disciples. And essentially, this word means learners. They're lifelong learners of the rabbi Jesus. They're increasing in number. They're at verse 1. And this is, if we think about, here we are just six chapters in, but we've gone from 120, you remember in chapter 1, plus 3,000 in chapter 2, plus 5,000 men, plus the women and kids in chapter 4. So the Lord was bringing supernatural increase in growth, wasn't he? 
And what we're going to see here is with this new growth came new problems. Look at the problem here. The Hellenists, at the third part of verse 1 here, are complaining against the Hebrews. The Hellenists are basically Greek-speaking Jews who were born in other lands outside of Palestine, outside of Israel. And they're complaining against the Hebrews, those who are native to Jerusalem and to Israel. And they're saying, our widows aren't being cared for like yours are. Now, this was a regular practice. The Jews practiced taking care of the widows and the orphans. And so we find the Christians doing what the Jews had done for centuries, and that's caring for the widows. Their widows were being neglected. And so Luke here, again, is giving an honest portrayal. He's showing, hey, there's potential disaster here. You've got two different ethnic groups. They're both Jews. They speak a different language. They could rally around one another and fight. And the Lord has a solution, doesn't he? The solution here is the 12 apostles, the 12 leaders, call together the community. Notice how they're doing this. They're not coming in with a solution saying, hey, you Greek speakers, you Hebrew and Aramaic speakers, we've got the solution. What do they do? They engage the people. Call together the whole church and they're saying, it's not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Let's see if we can come up with a solution together. We could go into all facets of this, but waiting on tables probably meant, we don't know, the text doesn't say, but it probably, the table was a place where they collected funding. If you remember, they brought money, laid it at the apostles' feet, and so it could have been at those tables they distributed money to help take care of the widows, or it could have been that they distributed food. They purchased with that money the food and distributed. We're not sure. But it it was one of those two. So look at the solution that they say here. The 12 call together, verse 2. And then verse 3, call them friends, which I love. Not underlings. Not community of servants. It's, hey, friends, brothers and sisters, why don't you select from among you seven men? of good standing, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We see, if we read on, what the apostles suggest is pleasing to the whole community, and they chose seven men. We've listed them here, and it was kind of my Bible quiz for the morning. I've had to practice on getting their names right. Should have had Colt read it, right? Throw someone else in this situation. But these seven, Stephen and Philip, and these others... What's interesting here, all of their names suggest something. They're all Hellenists. They're all Greek speakers. This is subtle here, but it's interesting. The solution comes from the people who see the problem. You see it? They're the ones, the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians are saying, our widows are being neglected. And so the people, the community... They trust them enough. There's not a Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking person among them. It's all Greeks. And they say, we trust you enough. You saw the problem, and so we fully trust you to take care of it. It's rather beautiful, isn't it? We get to see the, the church identifying leaders and then trusting them. 
I want us to think about this for a moment. Again, if I can be honest, Acts chapter 6 in the past has not been something that really got my blood flowing. I thought, man, it's kind of an interesting passage. This week, it has just been speaking volumes to me about what the church under pressure looks like and what it does. Along the line of leadership, let's just reflect here what this means. I've already mentioned that an increase in number as a church grows, so do the potential problems. Would you agree? Why is that? My wife said it. More people, more sinners in the process of salvation gathering together. And so there's more challenges, right? But this isn't bad news, right? Churches are to grow if the Spirit of God is moving and brings in new disciples. We want that, but we have to be braced seeing the book of Acts as a model. I've already mentioned this, but because those who saw the problem and they're the ones who are complaining, they get to help solve the problem. Yes, you heard that right. That was true in the first century, and it's true for you. So if you see a problem in the church, God is giving you discernment, And if you see it, you get to help fix it. I heard a hearty amen from everyone at that moment, right? Not a single amen. That is the way the the church works, right? God gives each of us gifts, each of us discernment to see needs. There's not one person or a committee or two people that see everything that needs to be improved or not overlooked. And so it is called the body of Christ. And so if you see something in this church, this local body, then I want you to get on your knees and say, Lord, how can I be part of the solution here? You're speaking to me about this, and rather than murmuring or complaining, I'm actually going to move proactively and seek to do something. Amen, church? We are incredibly limited, our leaders, our staff, and so this is body ministry that we're seeing from the beginning. Another thing that we see here is that the apostles didn't try to do it all. We've already insinuated this, but they help raise up other leaders to share the work. This is team leadership done in the power of the Spirit in the first century. The apostles work with the community, having them identify the seven people. Do you see it? And do they look for the seven people who are really flashy and who are especially gifted? And what does the text say? They're looking for people, look at verse 3, men of good standing. They have a good reputation. Their character speaks. They're full of the Holy Spirit. They're full of wisdom. They know how to live life skillfully and help other people solve problems. That is what they look for. And oftentimes, the church struggles to get this right. We look for the shiny person, the super winsome, charismatic person. And it may be those people, but the text is saying, we want character. There's got to be the fruit of the Holy Spirit. These are good men. These are good people, and people know that, and they trust them. This is part of the pattern that the apostles are laying out. Another thing here, this shows us that they work together. 
in unity across ethnic and cultural lines. Do you see it? The Hebrews and the Greeks cooperated with one another. One person says this, and I'm going to push this a little bit because there's something that, that I'm sensing from this text, but one commentator says this, the disciples do not fragment along ethnic lines or suggest that separate communities be formed along ethnic lines. Rather, they are committed to working together. A powerful testimony is created when different groups can be seen as working together in a world often divided along ethnic lines. Lord, do this among us. I just, I see uh, in the Vineyard Movement, and I'm just going to speak out a little bit because this is our family now, there has been a tendency to divide into subgroups. Let's get this ethnic group here and this ethnic group. Now, that can be productive in some respects, but the text is showing us here that the early church cooperated. And so I want us to think as a local church here, and I want to pray that the vineyard movement will take its cues from scripture and not the culture. Because the culture says, Asian Americans, you huddle up. Latin Americans, you huddle up. African Americans, you huddle up. And that can be good and powerful at the right time, but the text is showing us that we're, we're to cooperate. It's what makes us different than corporations. It's what makes us different than colleges. It's what makes us different than all that the culture serves up. We work together. Amen? We work together, and it blows the mind of the world because they're thinking, how are you working together? You guys are radically different, ethnically, culturally, maybe even linguistically. How is this? And we say, it's in the book. Revelation 7-9 shows us a vision of the church throughout all the ages and in the end, and it's a church of all nations. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation together worshiping. So Lord, do that with us here. Teach us, give us wisdom. Mess up our thinking and give us true biblical thinking. Amen? So the apostles, what they say here, along with these many other aspects of wisdom, is they say, we need to devote ourselves, look at verse 4, to prayer and to serving the word. Kind of like two things that go together, like seed and water. I want us to sit with this for a moment. Pastors are called to this today. But it's a constant battle. And many of us succumb to nonstop busyness and service and prayerlessness. Just like you at your jobs, wherever you serve, you can get caught up in all the details. You can find yourself in the weeds, and the text is saying here, if you are called to serve as a pastor and a leader of leaders, then you have to give yourself to prayer, and to the word. And friends, I, this is a constant struggle for me personally. It's a constant struggle for all pastors and leaders, not just the apostles in the first century. 
And so I want to just share with you openly that my call, based on this text, is to be constantly devoted to prayer and to the Word of God. It's what you should expect of me and the other pastors here. The prayerful reading, the study, the wrestling with God and my own sin on a daily basis, and warfare on your behalf through the Word of God. For some reason, we lose this model. We lose it here in this church. Wallace and I often are saying, man, we need to devote ourselves to prayer more. Let's pray together. Let's make sure that we're praying daily. We're opening the scriptures. Because if your pastors aren't devoted to this, then things get out of joint. Now, this doesn't lay anything heavy on us or on you. It's just the way it's supposed to be. The Lord is showing this. So I want to encourage you to pray for us. And I know many of you do, but we are in desperate need just like you are. And just because we're pastors or God has called us to this doesn't mean that everything is fixed and right. Amen, Wallace? In some ways, we and the whole staff, amen, all of our pastors, we struggle with the same stuff that you do, maybe even more intently. So we need your prayers, and we need your understanding, and we need you to be realistic about what's expected from us, especially as we grow. So you see lots of things that need to be done, and I love this church. Man, this is a non-complaining church, and I praise Jesus for it every day. I do not get texts and phone calls and emails from people saying, what about this and what about this? You are amazing. You're amazing. And I'm grateful for that. But I'm just encouraging you today to think about this is what your pastor and pastors and leaders are called to. You should encourage us. Press in through prayer. Press into the word of God. It's the way Jesus designed the way his church is supposed to be. Now, does this mean that pastors or staff people or leaders are more special? It does not mean that at all. All of us are called to prayer and the word. Is that right? So you can't just look at the pastors or the staff and go, oh, I'm so glad that they're praying on our behalf. They're studying the Bible on our behalf. They're trying to obey the Bible with every fiber of their being and to encourage that. So whew, I'm so glad I don't have to. No, church, this is what all of us are called to. We're all priests, right? First Peter 2 says that every Christian in the church is a priest called to minister to God. So as I talk about this, and I am trying to give myself to this with new vigor, prayer, the word of God, studying it, praying it, Lord, help me live it more and more. I want us all to feel this, the pull of this. We've got to get this order right here. We're called, like we see in Luke 10, Mary and Martha. Who is it that sits at the feet of Jesus? It's Mary. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word, and Jesus said, she's chosen the good part. Now, it doesn't mean that Martha is totally wrong and 
No, Martha was doing a good thing. She was serving in Luke 10, and it shows that. But Jesus is showing the priority there. We're called to be Mary first. You are called. I am called to sit at the feet of Jesus daily and to cling to him and cling to his word. And then from that place, I can go and serve like Martha. And you can too. So it's not either or, it's both and. But this is what we value around this church. We, the Lord doesn't need just a church of activists that are out doing stuff all the time and checking the list and going, hey, you like me more? You love me, Father, because I'm busy at work? The Lord calls us to be with him first, to be friends of Jesus, and then to serve with him. Amen? So we spent most of the time on verses 1 through 6, and quickly here, look at verse 7. The church is not only learning about being organized and organizing, but verse 7 shows the church is growing. Look at this very quickly. I'm going to read it again. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. And catch this, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is one place, and there's 10 other places in the book of Acts. They're called progress reports, where there are words like this. The church is advancing. The church is growing. The message of the kingdom is coming. The gospel is spreading. And so we get to see this, and we'll see it the rest of the book, these moments where it speaks about the word of the gospel spreading. That message of the life, ministry, death, resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That is the word that is spreading like wildfire through Jerusalem, and it's going to spread to the ends of the earth. We'll see that. But friends, it's not just the word is the gospel. The word is a person. Scripture tells us this, doesn't it? And sometimes evangelical churches tend to focus on the book, the Bible, the writings, but John 1 tells us that the word is a living person. And so in a sense, this verse 7 is saying, the word of God, Christ himself, is spreading the news about him. Friends, the written word, the gospel, brings us to the living word, the Lord Jesus, truth incarnate. Look at the second part of that, verse 7 there. The disciples are multiplying. So the word is spreading. The disciples are multiplying. The church is growing. And then that latter part of verse 7. There are even priests who are becoming obedient to the faith, to the gospel. It's amazing. Radically committed leaders of synagogues are reading the scriptures reading the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and being convinced that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah. And he's doing this again today. There's a great revival and outpouring of the Spirit among Jewish rabbis and leaders. So more, Lord, do it. Bring them to the Messiah. The last thing here, verses 8 through 15. I'm quickly looking at this because we're going to look in a couple of weeks more at Stephen, but we see that the church under pressure expands through suffering. And Stephen is going to be a really vivid example of that. Verses 8 through 10, 
we read that Stephen, full of grace and power, is doing great signs and wonders. It's interesting. Is Stephen an apostle? What's your Bible say? That verse 8, I just read it. But he's doing signs and wonders. I thought only the apostles did that. So we're seeing early on where the vineyard gets it, everyone gets to play. So it wasn't just the apostles, but it's Stephen here. And we're going to see Philip doing this. These are non-apostles. These are not official apostles who have been with Christ and seen the resurrected Jesus. And these are other followers of Jesus. And yet they're doing the works of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And what he's doing angers the Jewish leaders. And so some of, at verse 9, the synagogue of the freedmen, and these would have been Jewish people who were either born into slavery or who had gone into different parts of the Roman Empire to serve as slaves. They've come back to Jerusalem and started a synagogue, and they are angry with Stephen and some of the other Christians, and so they instigate, they foment an uprising against them, and they bring, look at verses 11 and following, they bring false charges against Stephen. And it's pretty ridiculous, right? We'll look at this in great detail in chapter 7, the idea that Stephen would trash talk God or Moses or the temple is absolutely ridiculous. And we're going to see that chapter 7 actually is an answer to this. Stephen is going to look at the Old Testament and he's going to speak about the greatness, the glory of God and God's goodness in providing Moses and the law and the temple. So these are false charges that they've ginned up against him. Let's end with this. Look at that last verse. Again, we'll look at these charges and how they're false and they're really misunderstanding. They misunderstood Jesus. Do you remember in John 2 when Jesus spoke to the leaders and said, I'm going to destroy this temple, but I'm going to raise it up again. And the the leaders heard that and said, blasphemy, you're going to tear down this temple that took 46 years to build. You're terrible. They misunderstood. He was talking about his body. His body would be torn down as the temple and it would be raised again and become the new meeting place between God and humanity. So they're missing it. But look at this last verse here. Stephen, all who sat in the council, the Sanhedrin, look intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is meant to recall images of Moses. Moses went up to the mountain and met with the Lord and his face was shining because the glory of God was so powerful and so potent. So the text is actually saying Stephen's face is shining like Moses, the very one that he's supposed to be speaking ill words about. Where else do you think of a shining face in the New Testament? Transfiguration, that's right. Matthew 17 where Jesus takes up his three apostles with him, and the glory of God descends, and his face and his clothing and his person radiates the glory of God. The text is saying here, Stephen has been with Jesus. He has been in the presence of the Father, and he is glowing. He is being transfigured in a sense, transformed into the image of Christ, and the glory of God is shining from him. 
And friends, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, this is our heritage for all of us as New Covenant believers. 2 Corinthians 3 says that all of us with unveiled face behold the glory of God and we're transformed in the image of Christ. Why don't we stand? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to worship you through song. We get to be together. We thank you we get to study this amazing, mind-blowing, life-altering book. And we thank you that you make our faces shine with your glory as we interact with you. Thank you for that, Lord. Amen. So I'm going to ask the ministry team to come up. And I would also ask, Al King is going to preach next week. And I'm excited about that. And then the following Sunday, take note of this. We're going to actually look at Acts chapter 7, the whole thing. We're going to look at verses 1 through 53. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I want you to read it. So over the next couple of weeks, read Acts chapter 7, because it is Stephen's sermon. It's the longest message in the New Testament, and it's the longest message in the book of Acts. There's something really important about it. So why don't you think about over the next couple of weeks reading that, and then we'll come and, and look at that.